1: Today's topic is the Zergatrans story with my friend Byron Bennett. How is it going, Byron?
0: Hey, Joe. It's going great. Thank you very much for inviting me on. It's a pleasure to be with you.
1: Yeah, it's a pleasure talking to you. I've talked to you a few times and you've got a very interesting story and a very interesting project. I think you have probably the most ambitious project I've talked to probably in my life. <laughs> but, uh, so anyway, Byron, please introduce yourself and your company we are calling
0: from today. Thanks, Joe. My name is Byron Bennett. I was, let's say, I was born in Jamaica. My company is Zergatran, and what we're doing is we are building an alternative to the Panama Canal for shipping containers. Now, those in the business will know there are lots of different types of ships, boats, we're talking cargo ships that go through the Panama Canal. We're just going to build another option so that more things can cross directly between the North Atlantic and North Pacific.
1: Wow. And I should say for those of you who are going,
0: Panama Canal, I know that's a
1: thing. So let's talk a little bit why the Panama Canal is so significant. So in the olden days, we'll say prior to like 1904, I think is when they started. If I wanted to take a ship from San Francisco to New York, I would have to take my ship all
0: the way around South America, right? Yep, that is true. And there are ships that still do that, right? Yes. If you can imagine, while 90% of trade goes by sea, and most of that is between the North Atlantic and North Pacific, only 3% can cross direct using the Panama Canal. So everything else still goes the long way. Yeah, and so just, to, I, I have some stats here. To go from
1: San Francisco to New York, is thirteen thousand miles if you go around South America, and I know people are like, "Oh gosh, Joe, you're making me think of my geography." We have North America, which includes Canada, the U.S., Mexico. Then we have state, that Central America, those countries there in the, the middle, the little I don't know if it's a peninsula, it, Isthmus, something like that, and then you have South America. Thirteen or no, thirteen thousand miles from San Francisco to New York. So in 1904, we built the Panama Canal. When I say we built, it was more or less, it was built by the U.S. Panama became a country because uh, we wanted to build that canal. And the U.S. managed that canal for the first hundred years. I think we just handed that over. It is, I think, still the largest engineering project in history.
0: I'm right to say that i believe so it's still the most amazing in my book and extremely important to us today
1: and so what they did is re- rather than you have to go that 13,000 miles around south america they went to where the land was the most narrow and they said let's build a canal so we can go from the the atlantic the pacific and from the atlantic to the or from the pacific to the atlantic much faster and so that cut off 7,000? No, 8,000 miles. So 13,000 was if you go all the way around South America, if you go through the Panama Canal, it's 5,200 miles. So this was huge, and I think and you, we were talking before we hit record. There was attempts to create this canal many times. It was just a huge project. I forget how many miles it is. What is it, about 80 miles?
0: 100 miles? Less than that. I think it's uh, it's about... I, I forget the exact. I think it's more about fifty than eighty.
1: Back in nineteen oh four, they started. I think they
0: finished. What do you say? Nineteen fourteen. French started in eighty one. Then the U S picked it up in 04 and finished in fourteen.
1: Yep. And the problem was there was not enough money on Earth to fund this thing. They couldn't finance this. Ultimately, J P Morgan uh, was <laughs> was the financier. I mean, this was when he probably had more money than the US Treasury, or could at least get his hands on it. And so I think he was actually the finance minister of Panama for 30 years. So this was a huge undertaking. But again, it knocked off 8,000 miles. So today we have the Panama Canal, which has been a godsend, right? We have I think you said 3% of the world's trade goes through it. I had another stat from a few years ago that was 5% of world trade. Whatever it is, it's an enormous number, and a lot of that goes from to the U.S.
0: Yeah, it's, a, it's around 3% now. That number fluctuates, but it's a very, very important connection and transit hub for the entire system. So,
1: Byron, with that big noggin of yours, you came <laughs> up with the idea that we have a lot of challenges right now with the canal. To talk a little bit about the problems we have with that canal and why you uh, got involved.
0: Well, it's not necessarily challenges with the canal per se. The canal is amazing and it's, even, uh, it's operating more efficiently than it ever has, even with the introduction of the second lock system. But the ch- challenge, if one, is just it, it has limitations. Only about 49 ships or so can go through per day. So that's why only about 3% of trade can go through there. Now, we're not just talking cargo ships, but of all trade, only about 3% can go through. By contrast, on the other side of the world, about 15% of trade goes through the Suez Canal. If 10 times as much trade can go through the Panama Canal, 10 times as much wood and not take the longer ways around.
1: So you've come up with a plan and talk a little bit about your plan and the, your, your project, I should say, and uh, that is gaining momentum. Talk about what you've got going with, uh, I guess it's an alternative to or a supplement to the uh, canal and it's going to help us with trade.
0: Yeah, thank you. Uh, what we thought is another land bridge would be amazing and would help more trade flow directly. What's a land bridge? (laughs) Well, a a connection, in this case, something that connects two oceans. The Panama Canal connects the Pacific and Atlantic. We're just looking at something else that can also bridge uh, that connection. So we thought another land bridge, whether another canal or something, would be great to boost the amount of traffic that can go directly between the two oceans. However, environmentally and for a lot of reasons, another canal is just not feasible. There are proposals in Colombia and Nicaragua, etc., to try and do another canal, but for environmental reasons and other reasons, they're just not moving forward. So we came up with the idea of using an underground tunnel to connect the two oceans to connect uh two fully automated ports on each end
1: so from the pacific to the atlantic how far is that
0: now we're looking at about 80 miles for our route
1: and you're talking an underground tunnel using maglev yes so you have to explain maglev to us
0: <laughs> maglev is magnetic levitation most people are familiar with them from The high-speed trains of China and Japan. I don't think
1: most of us are familiar. We just see trains.
0: (laughs) Okay, you have your normal trains and you have your high-speed trains and then you have your magnetic levitation trains and your maglev trains actually don't touch the track. Using a combination of attraction and repulsion in magnets, the train actually sits an inch or so above the track. So it's floating. If you go to our LinkedIn page, you'll see a post from Bogle where they actually developed a test track where they have a 40-foot container floating on a maglev track.
1: So how does it move? I understand how you can get some... Now, we've all seen this, where you get an object to f- seemingly float because of a mag two magnets, right? Yeah,
0: you're basically turning on and off the magnets to create that movement.
1: So it can pull these things. How fast does it go from the Atlantic to the Pacific, or the Pacific to the Atlantic?
0: That's the thing, and why one of the reasons why we wanted to use Maglev. It's not it it's not good enough just to have a train uh, connecting the two sides. If you can imagine a 10,000, uh, 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 a ship carrying 10,000 containers, if you lay all those containers out, you're looking at a lot of miles. So we had to come up with a different system and one that would allow us to send each car across independently versus each container, each container across independently versus as a part of a train. And we need speed. So that's why it went to Maglev, so that we can send them across individually on skids, and be able to control them. We can't have it things going two, three hundred, four hundred miles per hour and colliding inside the tunnel. So you give me a lot to think about here, Byron. So I take a
1: ship to, and let's just say it's from Asia, and it's got to go to New York. Now I I could stop in the port of long beach or uh la right or seattle or i could continue down all the way past panama and how many miles are you past panama
0: i forget the exact number but it's roughly around 100 miles south and so panama is
1: previously was part of Colombia. yes and now it's an independent country and i think it became an independent country because the united states said if you let us build this canal (laughs) you can be an independent country And I think they were different somehow than the Colombians. But anyway, the U.S. and Panama has always had this close relationship, as we do with Colombia now. But this is in Colombia, and it's, you would just say, about 100 miles south south. of the Panama Canal. Yeah. And so I bring my ship, and would this be considered a brand new port?
0: Yes, we would be building two new ports, one on each side. And so at ports,
1: what happens is we take these containers off with cranes, We put them on trucks and then sometimes we take those trucks right over to a railhead. Sometimes it goes right onto rail and it moves. Sometimes it goes to a warehouse locally, right? Well, in this case, it's going to go onto a, what'd you say? What'd you call that? A skid. Goes onto a skid?
0: Yeah. Think of it as like a tray, right? Lunch tray. Yeah. A lunch tray. We put your container on a lunch tray. I've taken those down a hill in the <laughs> snow. You can fly. That's, you can. <laughs> yes. Stopping is a problem. Yeah, so those ships would come in on our Pacific side. And what we're going to do is so that we can load and unload them faster. We're going to have them come into more of a hangar versus just coming up to berth. That way we can have cranes on both sides as well as overhead. And those cranes will take the containers to feeder tracks that'll be right next to the cargo ships. Uh, we're talking on-dock rail here. So those feeder tracks would take those containers on these trays into our tunnel. Before they go into the tunnel, they pass through a security or scanning station. Then they're taken across the tunnel in under in about 15 minutes or less and put onto regional vessels That go to the U.S. Gulf ports uh, and to the U.S. East Coast ports uh, and to Europe. Now, we would also then fill those ships with cargo going back uh, west to, uh, excuse me, back to Asia.
1: So when I mentioned to a friend of mine, Steve Elwell, who you know, he said, "Yeah," he says that's interesting. He goes, and then he mentioned to me, he goes, "You know, there's a rail that goes between Windsor and Detroit." Now I'm from. Detroit and I was like, I know there's a railroad is, oh yeah, there's freight. Because now I, you can go by car through a tunnel over to Windsor or over a bridge. And now we're building another bridge, but he said, no, there's a separate like freight rail. And I was like, I had never knew that. He says, yeah, it's not uncommon. So it's not uncommon that we should move freight this way, but maglev exists and it's being used elsewhere, right? Yes. Is it being used like an application similar to this?
0: Well, right now, it's only being used publicly in two countries, China and Japan. There's other countries testing various systems. And uh, I mentioned uh, Max uh, Bogle. there in Germany developing their system.
1: I saw that. You sent me a link to that. I'll put that in the show notes. Anyway,
0: let's switch gears for just a
1: sec. So tell us a little bit about you. Where'd you grow up? Where'd you go to school? And uh, give us some career highlights before you came across this, before you started this
0: ambitious program. Gotcha. Never do anything small, right? Born in Jamaica in a small town called Bogwalk, not exactly the richest place. My mother had to leave me in Jamaica when I was two. Her mother was able to bring their kids, her kids up, but she didn't allow them to bring their kids up. So my cousin Marie and I had to stay in Jamaica, and my mother joined the U.S. Air Force six years later so that she can bring me up from Jamaica. So from Jamaica, came here, stopped in Philly. So you were
1: raised by your grandma for a while?
0: A couple weeks in Philadelphia, then it was uh, down to San Antonio, Texas, actually. My mom finished uh, basic training down at Lackland. So we're in Texas for a few years. They beat my Jamaican accent out of me, and then we shipped off to uh, Germany. So that's why I don't have much of an accent at all. How old were you when you moved to the U.S.? I was eight years old, and that's when I got my first pair of shoes. Uh, When my mother came and uh, picked me up, uh, basically she found that my grandfather had been making me sleep under the house and wasn't using the money that she had sent him for me. So, yeah, uh, eight years old, and that's when I got my first pair of shoes. That is
1: not the nicest upbringing there. To you.
0: Oh, It is what it is. Uh, there's plenty of people in this world that have gone through more, and, man, bless them. I feel blessed to just do the best that I can. Zero generation American, so I have that work ethic. And that's one thing that I've contributed to everything that I've done.
1: So let me ask you, what was your first impression of the United States when you moved here at eight years old?
0: Oh man. I mean, it's what like... kind of
1: shoes, you... first, what kind of shoes did you get?
0: One, I don't remember, but two, everything did you want to was wear them? so, um, of course, it was the most expensive and amazing thing that I got. And everything was just so amazing. It's like, The wealth, you cannot imagine going from nothing to seeing all the wealth around you. Just people just leaving cars sitting around that they don't use. I mean, it was crazy. It was quite amazing. So do you become a U.S. citizen when you join the military? I believe you do. And that's how my mother got citizenship for me as well. She may have had to apply for it, but I think that was part of it, yes.
1: So... Your mom was in the military, so you San Antonio first. Then you said you lived in Germany. Where else do you live?
0: Spokane, Washington. She had a few other bases. I wasn't uh, at all of them. In 1988, while she was still in Germany, I moved back to Philadelphia to stay with my grandmother, finish up high school. In Philadelphia at Overbrook High School. it was, what, a year behind uh, Will Smith? Oh, wow. Do you know the Fresh Prince? I don't. I never had the chance to meet him, but uh, I can tell you that uh, he learned how to punch better at Overbrook than what we've seen recently. (laughs) (laughs) And that was more of a slap. I think he he thought better. I feel bad for him. He seems like a good man. Oh, that was a setup from uh, start to finish. But what do you think? Well, it was the only award show we ever talk about now exactly all the talk was how are they going to make it relevant but uh yeah right before junior year in high school i was introduced to this uh entrepreneurship program i was one of those kids that i started this uh summer internship through the city of philadelphia fill a job and they placed me with this professional tax and financial consultant and one of the partners lynn thomas brought this entrepreneurship program to my attention. Turns out that Michael Milken had donated $5 million to the Wharton School to start the Wharton West Philadelphia project. And out of that, the Young Entrepreneurs at Wharton program. So through that program, I was introduced to entrepreneurship and started my first company, a promotional supply company, uh, which the university later bought all of the supplies for my incoming class for me. Because nice. the next year I ended up going to the Pennsylvania Governor School for Business, also at the Wharton School, then getting in early decision and attending Wharton.
1: Dude, getting in Wharton's not easy.
0: No. It's considered Must have been that a it's... great student. I did alright. I did all right. Um, it's it's still the only Ivy League to have an undergraduate business program. So it's a little bit more competitive to get into than the graduate programs. So what'd you do after you left Wharton? Moved to New York, work in finance like almost everybody else, and then slowly <laughs> started going back to entrepreneurial path. I still worked uh, consulting jobs in finance while I did various uh, companies uh, all over the place. Uh, I opened the first uh, luxury wine store in the East Village called um, Discovery Wines. Believe it or not, uh, they ask your closest competitors if they want you in business. Of course, they say no, right? No, that's
1: that, that's <laughs> that's a weird law that a lot of states have, and by the way, a lot of hospitals have it. So if you want to open a new hospital, your competitors are, have to agree. Yeah, we need a new hospital. Well, of course, they don't think they need a new hospital.
0: Exactly.
1: They don't. Why don't you ask the people in the neighborhood?
0: So we have the distinction of collecting the most petitions. For a liquor store in the state of New York, over a thousand. Everyone's like, "This is stupid." Let them open a liquor store. And that was before COVID made everybody stay home <laughs> and drink. Yes, yes. So we've done various businesses. Uh, had a, a chocolate store in the East Village called the Chocolate Library. Did various fintech companies uh, right before uh, starting Zergotren. I was working on. Uh, A financial technology company and then when uh, COVID started I thought the markets were going to do in a different direction so I closed that company down and boy was I wrong
1: right so when and why did you start Zergatran I mean and where did you get this I mean it's obviously a huge idea so where did it come to you from
0: well about 20-30 years ago NASA had put out this uh, concept for a maglev launcher and ever since then I've been dreaming about using it to build a transportation system for the Caribbean. So just shuttles from one country to the other, uh so people can travel more than one country at a time. They would be bus like in capacity for people and cargo. So this is what I've been thinking, what's been marinating for years. And six years ago I married my wife, and when she wanted to go back to Colombia I started thinking about what is I Is she from do. Colombia? Yeah, she's from Colombia, from the coast, from Cartagena. And I started thinking about what I can do in Colombia. Well, I, I told you before we record, Natalie is the producer and
1: editor for this. Hi, Natalie. Hi, Natalie. <laughs> <laughs>
0: but yeah, when she wanted to go back, I started thinking about what I can do. She's not in
1: Cartagena. She's in... Bogota, right? No. All right. Barranquilla, Barranquilla, nice. It. I think she's there. That's
0: also up on the coast. Just well, she actually works
1: least. with. She works with Lean Solutions Group, and Lean Solutions Group has like eight thousand people down in Colombia doing back office work for logistics companies.
0: Wow, that's so impressive. virtually.
1: I, I imagine a lot of people listening go work with Lean. Uh, they they do carriers, sales, they do a lot of technology. They do, you name it, you name back office operation stuff, they're doing it. And even sales. And a lot of tech projects down there. So that's awesome. My plug plug for lean. But, uh, and that's who I work with. I, so That's where Natalie works. So great company. Yeah, great I'll great check people. them
0: out. So when she wanted to go back to Columbia, I started thinking about what I can do down there. And that's when I came up with addressing this bo- bottleneck using maglev, because just train or even high-speed train wouldn't be good enough.
1: See, so, you, so your wife wants to move to Columbia, and you say, hey, maybe finally
0: use that maglev stuff? <laughs> what am I going to do in Columbia? Hmm, what kind of business could I build? Are you thinking of moving down to Columbia? I, I, I think we're going to stay in Florida for the most part and just uh, go back and forth uh, as we need to. Nice.
1: So can you speak Spanish?
0: <laughs> no, not very well. Come on, man. If you're going to
1: do business in Colombia, you need to learn that. <laughs> no, I'm not <laughs> No, yeah. I,
0: I'm learning. So what year did you start this? Uh, about three years ago. And it's been, oh gosh, a long slog. Right. Started it when no one understood supply chain problems. And we were trying to just explain something that people didn't get. So you to build... An underground
1: tunnel that has these trays where you can put these high-speed maglev. And how fast does it go? Three, 400 miles an hour?
0: Yes, we're not exactly sure what uh, top speeds are going to be yet. So talk about the process. You had to go
1: get, get yeah, obviously, What what is this all going to cost?
0: Yeah, the first thing we had to do was approach the Colombian government and ask for permission to move forward. And they gave us permission to move forward with the pre-feasibility studies. And what they also said, which was key, is that after we complete the pre-feasibility studies, we have conditional approval to move forward with feasibility. And they can include us in the national budget, which means that raising the next round of capital, we'll be able to sell bonds. Right.
1: So... Will bonds pay for the whole damn thing?
0: Oh, yeah. Pretty much this round that we're about to start is an equity round to raise $75 million to cover pre-feasibility and get started on feasibility. But then we're going to need about $15.5 billion for uh, feasibility and construction. But that's where the bonds come? That's where the bonds come in. And that's where all the infrastructure investors are used to coming in, after pre-feasibility and at bonds.
1: So. When you build this, you're building a brand new port. Where's that port? What city, approximately?
0: Well, on the Pacific side, it's going to be close to a town called Horado. On the east side, on the Atlantic, we're not quite sure just yet. It's going to be on the west side of the Gulf of Oroba.
1: Will there be just, will there just be one straight shot from Pacific to Atlantic,
0: or will there be offshoots? One straight shot. Now... Later we may build offshoots, but right now we're just focused on one straight shot. And it's important to note here that we're just transshipment. We're not unloading and packing anything. We're just transferring containers from one side to the other.
1: So this is this basically unload from a boat in the Pacific. and re- so rather than go to the Panama Canal and potentially wait, how long now? What's the wait period? Two to 12 days. So two to 12 days I'm waiting to go through the canal. How long does it take to go through the canal?
0: About 10 hours or so. So another
1: day to get through, we'll say. And then now I get to the other side. And I, the, the nice thing about it, I didn't have to switch boats. Yep. Now with this, you're saying not everybody can be served by the Panama Canal. Some, some ships are still going the long way, all the way around South America and back to North America. And that is thirteen thousand miles, and so you can get the advantages of the Panama Canal without the weight But I did, but the the exchange is I have to unload a boat, p- push those through your tunnel, and reload them on another boat. But I also saved
0: a lot of time. Yeah, while that's an additional step in the process, it actually not just makes the whole process much faster we can now sort those shipments and send them on to regional vessels more uh, going to their final destination more directly.
1: Yeah. And, you know, when we were talking about this, I, I kind of think of Panama. I sometimes think of Panama as a DC. It's a DC. So if I, a lot of us companies will distribute to the 30 or 30 some countries in Latin America so rather than sending stuff to Chile to Ecuador to Guam they'll say we're not going to have local, we're not going to have inventory in every country we're going to have it in Panama and so that's how we'll support it which is great but it has some challenges all by itself but this is saying push this through the canal i mean sorry through the tunnel your tunnel And I put it on regional ships. Those are kind of almost like the final mile as opposed to like being a container ship that's just going to the U S or actually a ship that might come from Asia that has to be unloaded and shipping to South America, North America, all over the place. Now it's can be sorted in your location.
0: Yeah. And there's just two other quick points here. One Ships that are above a certain size can't cross the canal anyways, right? I think it's about 13,000 uh, uh, TEUs.
1: Yeah, they had those, like, supermax that they built it out. Like, they expanded the canal not so long
0: ago, right? Yes, but that's still... Still not big still enough. The top. Yeah, and now you have things that are over 20,000, which is crazy. But, so, yeah, that's the first point. The second point is, I think we're going to see some of this manufacturing that's coming back home locate in Colombia for that reason. It cannot just be a distribution center for things coming into Latin America, but for things going out as well.
1: Right. And you talked a little bit about this before we hit record, about the whole idea of rail across to South America. Uh, and this is the connectivity that we need to have that we don't.
0: Yeah, right now, the new president in Colombia, Petro, is very pro-rail. And is looking to not just build out rail within the country, but it's rail connections to its neighboring countries. And this would be significant because right now you have a lot going across Panama. Right. But Panama has no rail and road connection to the rest of South America. But if you have our facility going across the narrows of northern Colombia, and then you have rail and road connection within Colombia going to the neighboring countries, well, then you have an extremely strong distribution network. Right. And by
1: the way, you mentioned the realignment. We'll call it the New World Order. Now maybe that's. Is that, they <laughs> uh, that you before? can't use that anymore. <laughs> they, can we say New World Order? <laughs> we'll have to come up with something brand <laughs> new, new. But there new is a real. New World Order. <laughs> The new, new world order. And there are problems in China. There are challenges that, and I think even if China was completely stable, they are no longer the lowest cost country. Um, I think we also saw during the pandemic, and even now, we have problems at the port. And I want to also talk about empty containers, but I'm getting to that. We know that environmentally, it there's some challenges to getting stuff from the other side of the world, shipping it here, especially with the... You know the the port congestion, so we're bringing stuff home, and I've been doing some uh reading about this, and we will move stuff back to Mexico. They're a great partner for us they're lower cost in the u s but Colombia uh, somebody described Colombia as Mexico's Mexico, so they are also have some lower costs, and I think of all the places in South America, they're one of the countries that is most European, so we kind of get them and they get us. And I can tell you from my own experiences working with Colombians, they are wonderful people to work with. They get us and we get them. So I can see us wanting to get a little closer to them. And that's with Rail.
0: Yeah, (laughs) and think about this, right? This whole just-in-time management system, the flaws are being exposed. But imagine if you had production in Colombia and South America and you can take it overnight on rail straight up into Texas that's what we think would be a game changer right now we have permission to go east west we'll see in the future if we can get permission to go north south and complete yep. that connection and that would be a complete game changer to not have all these stuff On ships.
1: Don't you have enough on your plate?
0: (laughs) (laughs) No. No. We're not going for just one new hub. We're going for upgrading the entire system. The whole region. It's about time. No. The whole global system. It's like we'll start with this hub across northern Colombia. Then we'll look at Nicaragua. We'll look at Mexico. We'll look at what we can do in the Middle East. But the whole system needs an upgrade.
1: So one of the challenges we have right now, and we talked, I've had this topic on my podcast before, during the pandemic, when we were struggling with LA and Long Beach, people made the point a few times in my podcast, that 70, 80% of the shipments leaving the US are empty containers. 70, 80% of the containers are empty. So we are shipping empty containers. We do have a trade imbalance. So we would ship, I think we, sh- if we ship to Asia, a lot of raw material, right? We send raw material, and but those don't go in containers. It goes in those big bulk shipments. But it makes no sense to send that many empty containers. We have to figure something better out.
0: We have to figure something better out. It's one of those things that drives me batty. It's like 70% of the containers that we move are empty, filled with air. And if you can imagine, 15% of our greenhouse gas emissions come from transportation and shipping, but yet all we're doing is moving air, cut out the air, ban the exporting of empty containers, let countries manage their inventories.
1: And and by the way, those of us in over-the-road transportation are really sensitive to empty miles.
0: Yeah. And.
1: Um, we've cut those down i mean that's a that's a hard thing to measure but overall we've been working on it for years when you have empty miles you're driving around you have you have emissions driver the, the carrier they know they're not making the money they want to make when you're empty but even one of the things that came up recently on my podcast was not just empty miles but what about half empty miles my truck is only half full yeah and so we're even working on that. Uh, I think that's what ple- people at Flock Freight are looking into. How do we how do we get to the place where we're really doing the best for the driver, the carrier, and the shipper, and the environment?
0: Yeah, and that's the second part of our system, which is amazing. It's like not only are addressing the need for more efficiency, we're also creating an environment that will fill those ships going back to Asia with goods, so that the the carriers will have loads in both directions. Yep. So you just won an award.
1: What was that about?
0: Yes, we were just very fortunate to take an award in Category 9 at the ESG World Summit and GRIT Awards in Singapore. What is ESG? <laughs> Environmental, Sustainability, and Governance.
1: So they like your project from, that, from an Not ESG perspective. Not
0: only like our project, but think that it's going to be a game changer in the sense that we're going to be the first green corridor and the entire facility is going to be green.
1: So we're cleaner using... than going through a canal.
0: Oh, absolutely. The canal and the lock system takes a lot of energy to operate. And that's part of the reason why it's so expensive. Maglab is more efficient. It's cleaner and all of our energy sources will be clean. You put no carbon in the air with Maglev, right? Nope. Very nice. Very nice.
1: So what's next? I mean, so you guys, you I know you're raising money. And what, give us give us some of those big milestones, There three or four big milestones. Yeah.
0: What's next for us? The first uh, milestone is the auditor just finished auditing our financials. The attorneys are wrapping up. So hopefully in about a week or two, we'll be able to file our 1A with the SEC to start a public offering to raise about 75 million dollars to complete uh pre-feasibility and to start in on feasibility that's our first milestone then the next milestone of course is to complete uh, the pre-feasibility studies and submit those and get go through the process of getting approval getting the bonds approved and then our third And next milestone would be to raise the capital for feasibility and uh, construction through bond sales.
1: So for those of us who aren't in finance, you've already raised money. Is that like seed round?
0: Yeah, we've raised some friends and family seed round. And funds that we're raising now are sort of seed. It's kind of atypical because of the project and the amount of money we need. So it's kind of seed. So when
1: once you get let's just say you just said seventy five million dollars, that's the one a right? So I raised you raised that money what that that money is to spent on the feasibility of this project. When do those guys get that money back? When does that money start coming back with here's your return?
0: Yeah, that's the thing. it really it really depends on the investor because after twelve months, there will be liquidity. In the sense that if there's a market, existing investors can sell, but also we'll be conducting a bond round then. And as a part of the bond round, we'll have an equity sweetener and we'll allow some of our existing investors to cash out somewhat then. So you're looking at about 12 months or... So
1: this ultimately goes public.
0: Yeah, we go public uh, next month in the first offering. And then once we do the bond round our existing investors will see a significant very very significant increase and can sell off some shares if they want to but then long term wise you're looking at about eight years from start to finish but once we're finished we're looking at a hundred billion dollar plus company because we're talking $15 and change to build, making about $10, 15000000000 a year in revenues. So there's no way you're not talking about a $100 billion plus company. So anyone that invests into this company is going to be doing extremely well. How does that, so you mentioned the bonds, so how does, does Columbia own some of this? Well, what we've decided to do is to issue the bonds uh, through our subsidiary in Delaware because we feel that would be better for a global network of investors than to issue them through a subsidiary in Colombia. The other side of that is Colombia just doesn't issue this much in bonds. They may issue a few billion a year, but I mean, not this level for this type of project. So no we're not going to issue the bonds through colombia yep well, that's fantastic so this is a
1: very ambitious project I, I but it's very exciting and i love what you're talking about here because this facilitates the trade that we really should be doing a long time ago we have moved goods and services from around the world by ship for a long time which is great and we still will continue to do that but the idea that i've always felt this way we don't do enough business with south america and it's such a massive market 600 million people down there and and it's somewhat disorganized because there are so many countries but this is a good start
0: <laughs> yeah and uh I think it's just tremendous potential and that what we do has the potential to not just double the economy of Colombia, but every country in South America. Yeah,
1: that's fantastic. So, Byron, give us some final thoughts on your big ambitious project.
0: Well, my final thought is this. If you understand that things are going to get more difficult before they get better, please support us and other people that are trying to implement solutions. For the last years, everyone in the supply chain space is trying to educate people about the problems, but now everyone understands the problems in supply chain. But now we need to start working together to build solutions. So we would ask you just to help us and support us building our solution. Support our IPO, support our effort to advocate for a ban on exporting empty containers.
1: Yeah, that's these are big, big
0: bites here, Byron. Congratulations. <laughs> I mean, it, as you mentioned, no small problems to work on, right? No small problems, but necessary. We need to improve our system so that everybody eats. While 70% of containers are being transferred empty, we can be transporting food more efficiently. Yeah, by the
1: way, U.S. agricultural exports declined because of a lack of containers during the pandemic. And meanwhile, we are sending empty containers back to Asia so you can say, fill those up with uh, computers and uh, yeah. phones for us, please. And <laughs> well, China. No, I take the back. Those things, I think, go by plane. But we we were getting goods that were more or less consumer goods for us, which we love, don't get me wrong. But the fact that we didn't weren't able to export
0: food is crazy. I think that that's criminal. And the fact that China was paying the shippers to send them back empty, I think there's uh, some issues there as well.
1: Yep. Well, so before you go, how do we reach out and talk? But by the way, for sure, guys, even if you're not going to get behind the Zurgatron uh, investment here, definitely check out the website because there is some videos with uh, what they're doing. And it is fantastic. You're not going to find a bigger project. Uh, I have not talked to anyone on a bigger project than this. So check out that website. and I'll put some links to that in the show notes. But how do we reach out and talk to you? And how do we work with you? And I'll put a link to your LinkedIn profile too.
0: Yeah, awesome. I'd appreciate that very much. Uh, LinkedIn is the best way to reach me. Uh, I don't do much social media, but we're on there all the time. And you can reach out to to me through our website z e r g r a t r a n ncom Excellent. Well, Byron, good luck to you, and thank you so much for coming on my podcast. Thanks, Joe. Stranger. It's been a pleasure. I love your podcast. Uh, I've been listening to all of them. Thank you. Excellent. Thank you so much, and thank all of you so
1: much for listening to my podcast. Your support is very much appreciated. Until next time, onward and upward. Bye.